Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Evangelism and discipleship is about planning for the next generation, right? And we need to be planning for the next generation. In fact, that's going to be our theme next year. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's focus upon the theme this year. And so let's talk about, you know, taking back the idea of evangelism and discipleship. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Timothy. And I'm, I'm doing a dangerous thing. I'm preaching one of the most commonly preached on passages of scriptures to preachers. The title of the message, if that really matters to you tonight is do the work of an evangelist. Titles do matter. I, I, we're doing, we do summer classes in the summertime on Wednesday night that are associated with discipleship and Christian growth. We have this tool that we use in our ministry that we call a runner's checklist. And the idea of the runner's checklist is running with patience the races that is set before you. And we, we just talk about, you know, beginning Christian life, what it is like to start out in the Christian life, and what are the things you're supposed to learn and know, what habits you're supposed to have. And then how do you become a self-feeding Christian and all, all those disciplines. And we talk about all of those things. And then we do classes throughout the summer and throughout the year to help people get to runner um, runner, we call it a miler, and then a marathoner, and then a coach, and you know these processes of discipleship, and uh, and so we teach these classes in the summertime. One of the things that we're doing this summer is quieting a noisy soul. Now I know, brother brother Jim Berg, that is the most brilliant title for any series ever given. It just grabs people and sucks them in because everybody thinks they have a noisy soul. And so it is just, it is so important, these issues of discipleship, and sometimes how we say things matter. Let's stand. Let's read. Second Timothy chapter 4. Let's stand together. We'll read out of this passage of Scripture. You've heard it before, but I'll preach it again. Verse 1, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not adjure sound doctrine, but shall, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the reading and preaching of your word. I Lord, I pray that you will transform our hearts and our thinking. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. People have asked me, I started out as a church planter um, in 1987 at 24 years old. Uh, I don't know why I did that. I, I do, well, I do know why I did that. I was graduating from seminary, and um, uh, you know, and I had blast. I was just one of those always in a hurry. So I blasted my way through high school, graduated from high school a year early, then went graduated from college at, at three and a half years, did my MDiv in three years. You know, just blast through as fast as you can. So I'm 24 years, and I'm going in to talk to Dr. E. R. Jordan. How many of you folks have any of you met Dr. E. R. Um, do you remember him? Um, I try to describe him to folks in our church 
And the best description I can give is Popeye. Right? I mean, Popeye would be a great description. But I, I remember going in and talking to him and asking him, because I was getting some some invitations to candidate for senior pastor positions at 24 years old. And I knew I wasn't ready for that type of thing. And so I went in and I said, Chief, how old do you have to be to pastor a church? And he said, well, what do you want to do? Oh, no, he said, what do you want to do? That's how he said it. And I said, well, eventually someday I'd like to go out west and start a church. Now, there, that was already planted in my head by the pastor that I had for many years, Jim Singleton. Dr. Singleton used to send us away to Bible college, but he would give us this speech as we go away. I'm going to send you to back away, but he said, he said 70% of the students stay within a 150 mile radius of wherever they go to school. I'm tired of sending people back east to go to school and they don't come back out west to, to do ministry. He says, you need to think about coming back out west. So, you know, my burden was embedded in my brain to go out west and start a church at some point. So I told that chief, I said, you know, eventually I'd like to go out west and start a church. Well, any if you knew Chief, you knew that church planting is his was his whole heart. I mean, he his goal was let's plant a hundred churches before I die. He started a seminary in order to plant churches. He didn't start a seminary because he wanted a seminary. He wanted a seminary as a means to equip people to go out and start churches. And so his answer to me was, "You're never too young to plant a church. Where do you want to go?" And from that moment on, we started looking. I'd never thought of going back to the Phoenix area. That would have been cheating. I grew up in Phoenix. So we looked at Albuquerque. I looked at uh, Denver. looked at the places in the Pacific Northwest. Began looking at Phoenix, Arizona. And um, all of a sudden, the light bulb went on. It was one of the fastest growing areas in the 1980s. So began began looking at that and realizing maybe, maybe God brought my family to Phoenix for a reason. I mean, after all, my God took my family from Omaha, Nebraska to Phoenix, Arizona when my dad graduated um, from University of Nebraska at Omaha. My mother, some of you folks here, is a graduate of Omaha Bible Institute, which later became Faith Baptist Bible College. So when I walk through the hallways here, I check the pictures to see if I can see a picture of my mother um, back from years ago. And so, but I remember my dad saying, maybe God brought our family out here just for this reason. And we were, when we came out, we helped to start Tri-City Baptist Church, and eventually we went out to start um, Northwest Valley Baptist Church. And we were, began this process of um, driving across Pennsylvania. I, I do know, I, I, there are some of you folks that are from the East Coast, and you understand that there are some people from the East Coast that have no idea of what the Western United States is like. We were talking to a dear lady at Calvary there, and we were saying, because my wife is from Detroit, Michigan. She's from um, First Baptist Church of Troy, Michigan, where, where Mike Harding is now. That's where she grew up. And um, so we were talking to this dear lady, and she, she said, well, where are you going to go? We're going to go to Phoenix, Arizona. We're near Philadelphia. She says, oh, you'll be so much closer to home now. <laughs> Just no clue. You take three Pennsylvanias, stack them up on top of one another, you get Arizona. The city of Phoenix, Arizona is now 4.8 million people, that metropolitan area. We have, uh, and, and so we came out to start a church. We got started. Guess what happened when you started a church? 
We got started and all of a sudden all these other churches started popping up near us. Fundamental Baptist churches. And I, you know, you're thinking, can't we coordinate this thing? And I started getting upset because, you know, young guys can get a little territorial and a little insecure. I don't know if you know that, but that happens. And I will readily admit that was me. So I go to my home pastor and I say, you know, I'm sitting there at lunch with Pastor Singleton and I was saying, these guys are starting churches. I can't believe they're starting churches all around. And Pastor Singleton looked at me and he said, Kevin, that's like one fly saying to another, get off my elephant. (laughs) You know, this job of planting churches and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, God taught me a lot of things planting a church, and especially coming directly out of seminary, I learned that if I didn't reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd never make it, we'd die. You just, I mean, when you're a church planter, you have to do that. Now, I know that there might be some churches where you can just sort of grow off of, you know, the disgruntled people from other places, but nobody really wants to pastor a church like that. And so we began working and trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple them. And I found I could, I could win people to the Lord and people were getting saved, but trying to get people from brand new believers to be able to teach Sunday school classes and be deacons and all of that stuff, that was a real struggle. How do I get people from here to there? And, and what I realized is that I really hadn't had in four years of Bible college and three years of seminary a really good education on discipleship and sanctification. I mean, we, I, I had theology, and I had to, how to preach a text, and, you know, and then there were all the other classes on all of these other things, but how to actually do this work in ministry, this is really important. And that's what we have to be doing. This is what we're called to do. So we need to do it. Now, the Apostle Paul was teaching Timothy to do this. One of the things, we, Brother Gordon Dixon and I went to Israel just about a month and a half ago. Was it about a month and a half ago now? Something like that. Um, and we were we led a group. We were with Craig Hartman. One of the things you'll see in Israel is you'll see, have you ever seen the, the rabbis? You know, they have the long coat and the hat. And they'll walk, and then they have all these little rabbis. I mean, they're, they're like teenage boys that are following along with them. And they'll have this conversation there, and they're talking. And you see this rabbinical model of teaching. Did you know that that's how Jesus taught? Did you know that that's how Paul taught? Let's look at this passage of scripture because we can go back to chapter three. I'm trying to decide whether I really want to go to the beginning part of chapter 3. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You know, does this sound like today? And then in the middle of this, In the middle of this, the first thing that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, 
about Timothy, continue on in the work of the ministry, because the Apostle Paul is, we know in chapter 4, he's going to say, uh, you know, the, the time for me to be offered is at hand. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be off the scene. And you're going to have to carry this on. And he's, and he's telling him, I want you to carry these things on. And what's his reason? What's his reason for carrying on? You say, well, you know, this have this great and high calling. And we go into all of these things. Here's what he says. But you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. This is that rabbinical model. This is life on life. This is, this is Paul discipling Timothy through the trials and the difficulties and the tribulations of his own life. We have exalted the pulpit. And there's nothing wrong with preaching the word. I'm getting to this. I have a bunch of stuff to preach here. But we have sometimes exalted the pulpit to the detriment of the personal relationships that are essential in evangelism and discipleship. God calls preachers of churches of lo- you don't graduate to a place where you have a church that is large enough where you don't have one-on-one ministry anymore for the preacher. God has called us to impress life upon life. And that's how life change comes. And then, of course, he says you've had the scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation. And because you've had all of this, because of these days that are coming, and because you should continue in ministry, and because you've known who I am, and because you have the scriptures, and you have the inspired scriptures, which are sufficient, here's what I want you to do. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the quick and the quick and the dead. Here's what I want you to do. Preach the word. Do we really know what that means? Preach the word. I I think sometimes when we preach this, we don't preach what Timothy heard. I mean, when Paul said preach the word, what did he mean? Well, we know preach. What is that word? Announce. This is the you learned it in seminary. Announce like a herald. One of the great privileges I had when I was a student in college was being in King Lear with Dr. Bob Jr. And my role, my the part that I played in this Shakespearean play was the herald. And the herald comes to the final scene and is delivering his message and then everybody kills everybody else on stage and I was the only one left standing alive, I think. But a herald declares this message. He says, preach, declare the Logos. So we're supposed to announce a message. It's not my message. It's the message of someone else. I'm supposed to proclaim that all my hear. It's not in a selective announcement. It is this. And it's, by the way, it's not the word to teach. Now, it doesn't mean that pastors aren't supposed to teach. Pastors are supposed to teach. That's part of, you know, God has given pastor teachers. But there is this word which is announce, declare the word. Now, this is the point I want to get to this passage of Scripture. And we have nine commands here. And my suggestion to you is that the nine commands here all have to do with evangelism and declaring the gospel. 
So let's talk about this word logos. You know the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. There is another word in scripture. Most of the time when we preach this, we preach, we preach as if it means dissect the scriptures. But this is not a command to dissect the scriptures. This is a command to announce the logos. Now what is the logos? Well, the Logos included the scriptures because the scriptures are part of God's message. But I would suggest to you the idea of the word Logos is more revelation. It's the message. Jesus in John 1, 1 is the Logos. It's the, it's the message. Well, what is the message that God has called the church to declare? Folks, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms lives. When, when Timothy heard this, I don't think he heard, get into your study, dissect the scriptures, and give people a detailed grammatical analysis of the Old Testament scriptures, I think what Timothy heard was, go out and declare the message. And there's a little bit of a different idea there. We have sometimes, in our advanced theological education, I'm a seminary graduate, I got a doctorate, but we have transformed the work of the local church pastor into seminary professor. And we don't sometimes do not know how to connect with people. One of the most one of the most important things for me in ministry was sharing the gospel with people who are brand new to the faith, who don't understand the things that are going on. We have a fellow in our church that he's just now finished um, his Bible college training at International Baptist College. He's moving to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I think he might be in, being involved in the ministry there. And Jeff is 50 years old. Jeff got saved in a Calvary chapel. He showed up on a Sunday night, barefoot, long hair. You know, that's, I mean, that's Jeff. And he, he got saved and he, he loves the, but I mean, he's one of those ameners. He's one of the people that shouts across the parking lot to everybody. He sees Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. But Jeff also has a habit, especially on Sunday night. If I'm preaching a message, he'll just shout out from the back row. What does that word mean, pastor? We all need people to do that more often. Preach the word. And, and you, don't, you don't always have to be deeply theologically trained. A few years, uh, just a few weeks ago, my mother was going through her files. She's, you know, my dad died a couple of years ago and mom's starting to go through the files and get rid of stuff in anticipation of moving. And she found this little booklet that I didn't know existed. And it is the memoirs of my grandmother about her childhood. My dad was the youngest of 12 children. So understand, my grandmother was born in 1899. And so these are the memoirs of my grandmother talking about her father, who my father never met. She, They grew up in a little town called B-Town, Wisconsin, which is the southern, the southwest corner of, of Wisconsin. If anybody knows where B-Town is, you're amazing, because it's like six six buildings in a row. 
He, um, my great-grandfather, I found out just reading this, was a blacksmith. He was Methodist and got burdened about the gospel of Jesus Christ and decided in the winter times he would do, go do evangelism. And, and, and so what he did was packed his family up. In fact, let me just read this. This, this is just a blacksmith. Okay, th- th- these, it's just amazing to me what people did. He bought a camera and learned how to take pictures and how to develop them. The plates were like small painted glass. When he took a picture, he had a tripod and he set the camera on it and he put a big black cloth behind his head and he said, watch the birdie. And also the, he bought a cornet and an alto and a bass horn and a drum and taught himself to play the cornet and he taught Ada, which was uh, my one of his daughters, the alto horn and Pearl, the bass horn. My brother Adam played the drum. That's the big bass drum. Think of old Salvation Army Band, okay? And um, he bought two big trunks. My mother assembled clothes and whatever needs. And my father bought a big light rig and two seats pulled by horses. He, he put a $20 bill, $20 bill in his pocket, said goodbye to B-Town and his father, and drove to Cassville and Cassville, the Mississippi River. He went across the Mississippi River into Iowa, and he launched out by faith and held revival meetings wherever he could. He went into a, a town... Um, and the Jameson band was, loud, band was loud enough for people to hear. He would, the people loved having their pictures taken. He used that to attract people. His services were filled with people in the surrounding area. Many heard the gospel and were saved. In one town, he asked the people if he could use the church. That's what he would do. Go into a town and just say, hey, can I have evangelist, can I do evangelistic meetings in your church? Can you imagine that? Just by faith going out and doing that kind of thing? And he said, went to one town and he said, no, the church is closed. The people closed it because Aunt Hannah and Uncle Josh got in the fuss. So they shut the church down. My father said, I don't know anything about your quarrels, so I can't take sides. Just let me hold a few revival meetings. They said, okay, but just don't take sides. The word was preached. Aunt Hannah and Uncle Josh came under conviction. Aunt Hannah went over to Uncle Josh, asked forgiveness. This broke the meeting wide open and, and, and people were saved. Folks, if God can take a blacksmith with no particular training who just goes out in evangelism and does the work of ministry, God can use us too. But you know what he did? He just announced the logos. Let's take a look at some of the other commands here. Be ready. By the way, we talk about announcing the logos. That's a one-on-one ministry. A number of years ago, it's about four years ago, young couple started coming to our church. There was a lady in our church that met another lady at the bus stop where her kid, and they were just brand new. Um, the, the, the first one was just brand new to our ministry. She met another lady at the bus stop. She started inviting her to church. They started coming off and on, this young couple. They started coming to my newcomers class and I asked them if they, you know, do they know anything about the gospel? They said, no. I said, well, can I come? And have a meeting with you. So went and had a meeting with them. Asked them if I could do an exchange Bible study with them. They said, okay. So we set up a time frame to do the exchange Bible study. Which is a four-part evangelistic Bible study. If you don't know it, Brother Jeff Musgrave will tell you all about it in this meeting. It never happens four weeks in a row. I don't know if this, Jeff, you found this happen. There's always things that happen. So the four weeks usually takes eight weeks or ten weeks or something like that. We went through the four weeks and both of them bowed their heads and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you know what that was, you know what I was doing then? 
announcing the Logos. That's announcing the Logos. Then you notice the next command. The next command here is be ready. In season, out of season. Now this is an interesting word. It's a, it's a military term that means to place yourself on or near. In fact, it's to stand by, stand or approach. We often miss the most important aspect of this word because we think of someone like the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier standing out all by himself in the rain and the snow, um, completely isolated, and he's doing his job. But that's not the idea of the word here. The idea of the word here is to approach, attack, or confront In fact, the word is used in Luke chapter 2, and she coming in, that was the word, coming in, it means to approach, come upon, come in. In fact, if you take a look in... In, in the immediate context, the word is used in the context. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my parture, here's the word, is at hand. What does it mean? It's coming upon me. In other words, the idea of here of this word, where, which it says be instant or be ready, is about being constantly engaged. Constantly approaching, constantly working, constantly thinking, constantly engaged. We don't, we don't have a time where we should be disengaged from ministry. Be ready. The best way I can describe it is to, to engage people constantly. You know what this means? You have to be constantly looking for lost people with whom God is working and God is doing a work. You're looking for, the term that we've used oftentimes, is divine appointments. It's amazing how many unsaved people ready to hear the gospel are around us all the time and we just missed it, miss it because our brains are not, you're thinking about the ball game or we're thinking about, or, or we're thinking about the stock market or we're thinking about the, you know, politics or, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever. We, and we're not engaged about the things that are most important to us. Be ready, be engaged. And then he goes, reprove, rebuke. And it's interesting, those two words, reprove and rebuke. Uh, I tried, I spent hours trying to decide what is the difference between these two. I don't know if I know for sure the difference. The best I can understand is one, the first one, reproving, is more about private correction, and rebuking is more about public confrontation. One of the hard things about doing the work of evangelism and discipleship is saying the hard things. And he tells Timothy, you have to, you have to say the hard things. And sometimes it's those things you have to say in private. Um, David and Heather, I would just mention the two young couple that got saved. I asked Heather if I could tell this story. And she was, she rejoiced in the fact that I could tell this story. Heather describes her childhood lifestyle as couch surfing. She grew up in drug houses. Her mother was an addict. Throughout her elementary 
in early high school, she lived, she slept on sofas in crack houses. Imagine that kind of environment for a girl that age. I one time asked David, I won't call him her husband, he was her boyfriend. I one time asked David, um, because they weren't married when they got saved. You know, they came to church living together, three kids, not married. That's the world we reach, right? And uh, I asked him, how did they meet one another? And David, you know, it's interesting, you ask these questions, and sometimes you should think through whether you really want the answer before you ask the question. And he looked at me, and then he looked down at the floor. He said, well, I met her because I first started doing drugs with her mother. Her mother has subsequently died of a drug overdose. And David's about 10 years older than her, and, you know, they got together, and they had children, and, you know, next thing you know, they're in our ministry. And... And, you know, they started coming to church every once in a while. And Heather, bless her heart, she started, you know, coming to church every while, and she would dress up. But you understand, when a girl like that from that background dresses up, and they think they're dressing up nice, but you, you know what I'm talking about? You have to talk to them like this. You know, you, it's, it's hard. And she thinks she's doing great. And you have to be careful that you don't say anything that is discouraging. And, and so, you know, she starts coming to ministry and coming to church, and then she she fall back and start dealing with alcohol problems, other depression problems in her life. And and Kathy, who was her friend that eventually, you know, first met her, just would keep on with that friendship, and we'd keep touching, keep those touches going on with David and Heather. And eventually, she starts coming with Kathy to Freedom That Lasts on a Friday night. And in the past year, in Freedom That Lasts. God has just tremendously gotten hold of her heart. And his too. But you know how it is with these, when they get saved, you have a couple, they kind of grow like this, you know. And so God has just grabbed her heart. And she, we, I had told her before, you know, you, you need to get married. You need to make this right. But she wanted to have a big wedding and she kept wanting, there was always reasons why she was dragging her feet. Well, God has really gotten hold of her heart, and she wrote out her testimony, and she gave it to me to read. This was about a month and a half ago. And I took some time, and I read through it, and she said, Now, Pastor, we need to talk about baptism. Reprove. And I said, Heather, I would love to talk with you about baptism, but there's a big thing we have to talk about first, isn't there? And I did it as lovingly as I could, but we have to solve this marriage issue. And it was the moment where her heart was prepared. And she said, okay, she wants, I mean, she's to this point, I want to obey the Lord. It doesn't matter. It, it, I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. And so there was this private correction, but now who's dragging his feet? He is. So they come to me this past week on Tuesday. And she says, Pastor, we need to get married. We need to do right. I want to get baptized. I want to do right in my life. But David thinks that we need to wait, and I want to take a day and have a special day. She says, who's right and who's wrong? And I looked at her. I looked at them, and I said, well, Heather, you're right. He's wrong. Not very often in counseling you get to do that, but... 
He said, well, pastor, really? And I, so then, so then I did the next one because there is this private, gentle correction that you do, but then sometimes there's the rebuke that you have to do. And so I just looked at David and I said, David, how, how bad do you want to have a special day? And he looks at me and says, what do you mean by that? Well, I said, how long do you want to sleep separately? Because that's what obedience looks like. <laughs> she got this big grin on her face. Yeah, got him. <laughs> on Wednesday night, I did the wedding. They got saved. They got married. And she's ready to get baptized. Came to church on Sunday morning. She's in my growth group, and they're in so in, in my which is my Sunday school class. And I introduced them as newly married. And David said, it's nothing new. And she said, we decided to obey God. God is in the business of transforming lives. And God is in the business of taking people from some of the most miserable, unimaginable circumstances you can possibly think of and turning them into trophies of His grace. But it takes, what does it take? It takes us preaching the Word, being ready, privately correcting, publicly, sometimes publicly rebuking, or rebuking in, in place of others. It also takes encouraging, coming alongside. I mean, in, in this particular case, encouraging. He's, David comes to me, Pastor, what do you owe you? Oh, what, do you, what do I owe you for doing this wedding? David, absolutely nothing. You're doing the right thing. You know, all of that encouraging, being together, bringing flowers, showing them you care, showing them that you love them, trying to encourage people to do the right thing. We tend to think of this as all verbal, mostly public, usually enthusiastic. You can do it, but it's often done with, it's often done with words, but it can also be accomplished by actions, this encouraging. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but it also must be ours. It's the net effect of helping people to keep moving in the right direction, to keep them from being discouraged or distracted, helping them focus on the right things and avoid the wrong things. It's done with long suffering. This has been four years with this couple. Just touching. Sometimes it's been discouraged. You think, oh, they're gone. But you keep touching. I have a young man. He started dating one of the girls from our church who was sort of away for the Lord. And she started coming to church. And then she would bring him with him. He's with her. He's Catholic. And I had an opportunity to meet with him and then challenge him about doing an exchange Bible study. We never really got started. And so every two weeks, I text him. They broke up every two weeks. Richie, I'm still willing to do the Bible study. Just keep, keep touching, keep touching, keep touching, keep touching. Why? Because it takes long suffering. And sometimes you get discouraged and sometimes people have setbacks. And sometimes you, th- you think all your effort is in vain. It's not in vain. We're in it for the long haul. Satan's not going to give up on them. We can't. Using biblical guide-guided self-restraint, carefully thinking before speaking, 
you know, that self-restraint. When she gave me this testimony, and I'm going to read it here for you in a minute. When she gave me this testimony, and she was all excited about it, I'm praying the entire time she's giving me the testimony, because I know she's going to want to talk about baptism, and I know I'm going to have to talk about this marriage situation, and I don't want to be discouraging in it. And I don't want to lose the relationship in it, but I need to, but I, but I know I want, I know I'm going to have to say this. And so it means that you, you bathe all of these conversations in prayer, looking for the opportunity to be encouraging with long suffering, patient in it for the long haul, being circumspect, watchful, ready, well balanced. Notice what it says. And I'm just, I can't preach this entire text. So I'm, I'm, I'm just preaching the main uh, the, the main commands in this text. He says, For the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves after their own lusts, uh, teachers having itching ears. And we, we know all that. He says, But here he says, Watch thou, be circumspect in all things, endure afflictions. You know the hardest, one of the hardest things about being in the ministry for a long time? In evangelism, in discipleship? It's all the times in which you invested sometimes 10, 15, 20, hundreds, thousands of hours in somebody's life and they walk away as if you had done nothing. And it's painful. You know what I'm talking about. It hurts to your core. So much so, especially you pastors who've been veterans of ministry for a long time, so much so that we don't, we're not so sure we want to touch that hot oven again. But folks, if we ever get to that point where we won't endure hardship and that kind of pain of rejection, then it's time maybe we just need to get out of ministry. Because this goes with the territory. You say, well, how do you know it goes with the territory? Because Paul suffered it. Paul, do you remember? It's Demas has forsaken me. It's right in this passage of Scripture. It's in verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Here he is at the end of his life, about ready to be a, become a martyr for Jesus Christ. And there are those people in, in, in whom he has invested his entire life, and they're forsaking him. This is part of ministry. But if we let this keep us, from, from making ourselves vulnerable and opening, opening our hearts to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're, de- we're, we're just not doing, we're not obedient, we're not doing the work of God, and we're denying the gospel to people that need it. Endure hardship. Make, do the work of an evangelist. Be willing to suffer evil, but perform the task of evangelist. In fact, the idea here is being employed in evangelism. We're having a discussion about um, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ on staff. And so I'm encouraging our staff members to be, you know, having, being involved in um, evangelistic conversation and evangelistic relationships, and they're doing it. But, you know, it was really encouraging. And I, so I just started going through people in our church that have got saved that have had a chance to lead to the Lord over the years. And when you've done that for 35 years, you can point out people. And it seems like, man, you're this great evangelist. I remember uh, George Binoka looked at me and he says, well, Pastor, not everybody has the gift of evangelism like you. Can I tell you, I don't have the gift of evangelism. 
I mean, if you're talking gifts, I don't have that gift. Now, my friend Mike Sproul, who's been a lifelong friend of mine, he has the gift. But, but this isn't about the gift of evangelism. This is about people who are called to the ministry doing the work of an evangelist. And we're all called to that. He's being employed. This is the job description of a pastor. We cannot theologically argue it away. It's what we're commanded to do. Be a good message teller. And then he says here, full, make full proof of your ministry. Here's the point. Don't be half a pastor. What's half a pastor? Half a pastor is the guy who walks all by himself into the pulpit, preaches his wonderful theological masterpiece, ducks out the back door, and lets the sheep go on their way. Shepherds live with the sheep. And shepherds shepherd the sheep. And Shepherds reach the sheep with the gospel and shepherds disciple them. And we are called to be shepherds. We cannot be half pastors. Make completely fulfill your ministry. Don't be half a pastor, almost a pastor. Now let me, I, so there's a challenge here, but I want to encourage you. Folks, God is at work today. We have opportunity today more than we ever have before. I find people open to the gospel more than I've ever seen it before. We have people flocking to our church. Uh, we have a Christian school. So one of the things that they're doing is they're desperately looking for some place for their kids to go because of the, the horrible stuff that is going on in public schools. We had a couple that came to us just this last fall. They came in December. Well, it was, it was earlier in the spring. And, and they came and they, they have this, this young man I think he's in sixth grade or seventh grade. Very astute young man. Dad's uh, has a doctorate in educational psychology. Mom works for Wayne State University remote. They, you know, they're highly educated. He teaches at a local college, and and wonderfully saved, and lives transformed. She got baptized on Christmas Day, and I've. It was really interesting when she gave her testimony. He had been saved earlier, but she, when she gave her testimony. She preached it. She didn't just give a testimony. She preached it. It's just, when you, there's nothing that will give life to a church like hearing new believers declare what God has done in their lives. And so, this is testimony to what God is doing in the world today. From the homelessness and couch surfing through my middle school years and teens, Riddled by addictions from alcoholism to marijuana, cocaine, meth, opiates that started in junior high, feelings of loneliness and depression and anxiety led me to try to end it all, this is Heather, three times. I was riddled by my shame through accumulated sin. I was lost and on my way to full-blown destruction. Anything that good that came my way, I felt undeserving and unworthy. Questioning God through my trauma, not dealt with throughout my childhood, adolescence, and even through adult, young adulthood years. I believed that nothing was truly good. Nothing was truly as it seemed or claimed to be. So self-sabotaging became my friend. Unafraid to die, I seemed to almost welcome it. The devil is a liar. He's the great deceiver. 
My environment in which I was raised in was not a godly one, to say the least. I mean, I, I added that in there. She's just soft-pedaling it here. Uh, and, and church was not a part of our routine. The only time I can recall attending church was in elementary school. When living with my grandmother in her trailer park, a friend next door asked me to tag along. I enjoyed it, but wasn't grasping the message. But God was sowing seeds. Along my journey that God was paving, my path crossed with Kathleen Herman, who, my, who had a son attending elementary school with my son. They rode the bus together. One day, she asked me to come over and play with my eldest son. At that point, I had two sons and was still struggling with self-sabotaging, self-loathing and addictions. Me, not the so peoply person, decided on that day, the day my son's friend's mother came to introduce herself to me and meet me so her son could visit with me at home, I decided for some strange reason to open up and share what I was dealing with. A weird calmness came over me and I let the floodgates open. Her response was one of love, one of direct, one directed by God. She asked for us to attend church with her and I went and started attending, I went and start, she started attending FTL. This actually followed a little bit later. Freedom at last and we went to a Sunday service. Pastor Shaw came to our family home, our family home and gifted us with the exchange. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Where I placed my faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ as one true Savior, my only Savior. The one great Redeemer, God's Son, who died for my sins and rose again, that I may become a new creature in Christ, a child of God. Abandoned by blood, family, and friends, the devil told me I was alone. That all who came would only, would one day leave, but God, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is my true friend. The devil said it's okay to numb with pain and alcohol. It's legal, isn't it? The drugs will give you strength to face another day. But God says, lean on me when you're weak and weary and I will give you rest. The devil said to me, look at what you've done. You're dirty. You can never be forgiven. Look at the sin you've committed. There's no hope. No turning back now. Adorned me with shame, regret, and hopelessness. But God says, my child, repent of your sins and turn away from them. Here is my son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Savior of the sinful, lost and broken, a true friend with love that gives life, words that are true, loving, healing, and life-bringing, precious blood that has been shed for your gain, that wipes the slate clean. I have begun, I have been forgiven. I am a new creature in Jesus Christ. My walk with Christ will forever be a lasting one. One in which there will come temptation, trials, tribulation. But I now have a role model and friend who has not left me stranded, but has given me God's word, the Bible to draw on from which I can draw strength. Jesus is the golden standard. To achieve Christ-likeness is the goal. So much adversity I've faced in situations in which I've asked why and how am I still here. I know now that God has with been with me through it all. Working in my life in ways unknown to myself, never was, never has he abandoned me or left my side. He was working. He was leading me to himself. God is in the business of transforming lives. And there are people around you right now that God will use you to reach with his word. Don't be half a pastor. Fulfill your ministry. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. 
If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Thank you.